Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is the climate activist Michaela Loach. She is utterly inspirational. When she was 16, Michaela decided to go vegan, boycott fast fashion and start a blog. She learned more about the climate crisis, became involved in the movement and began to communicate her passion to others. Michaela's Instagram following grew and in 2020 she featured in the Women's Hour Powerlist in recognition for her work bringing environmental issues to young audiences. She's now written It's Not To That Radical, a book for anyone who's felt anxiety or powerlessness in the face of the climate crisis. We met on the day the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a major report on the climate changes happening worldwide, a well-timed, if slightly terrifying moment to discuss Michaela's activism and much more. Michaela Loach, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, you didn't grow up in a family of environmental activists. Do you remember what or who first raised your awareness of the urgent need to learn more and actively engage in the climate crisis? I, I think that whilst I might not have, from a straightforward sense, understood the climate emergency, it was around me a lot. I think as it is around a lot of us. For example, whether it was the fact that so I was born in Jamaica and when we'd go back to Jamaica every year, beaches that I went to as kids would be disappearing more and more as the years went on or I would be able to see where flooding has hit the island. But it's so strange. I didn't make that connection to that is the climate crisis. It just felt like, oh, natural disasters happen in these parts of the world. Um, How old would you have been? Like very young, probably like 14 years old maximum. Climate so. crisis doesn't necessarily dawn. No, and, and I think at that time at school, we were being told that the climate emergency was just about ice caps and polar bears and it was about recycling. And so I didn't really connect these two different things. And I was much more passionate about migrant justice and migrant rights and about racial justice and racial injustice because that felt more immediate. And so I was involved in that kind of work instead as a young teenager what triggered the transition? I think it was realising that all these things are connected. So it was when the first IPCC report in 2018 came out, and it was that big one that was saying 
everything is going to change around us, but also all these existing inequalities are going to be exacerbated and and made worse unless we do something to tackle this crisis. And I realised that if I care about migrant justice, if I care about my island home in Jamaica, then I have to care about the climate crisis too, because it's going to make all of these things worse. But at the same time, it was this realisation that It's not just about stopping the bad stuff. Climate justice will allow us an actual real chance of fighting for real liberation for all of us. And that's what I think made it exciting rather than this kind of doom and gloom um, perspective that I think we've been given too much of. You were 16 when you started writing a blog. Did you return to that blog to remember your younger activist self uh, when writing this book? I mean, what was she like? Um, I did return with full cringe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Looking back at my 16-year-old self, And I think that actually one of the biggest things I got from looking back at my old blog, which I used to write, I don't know, about any kind of issue that was happening about the election of Donald Trump or about women's rights or these things that um, as a teenager, I was really trying to work out what should we do about these things that seemed so big. And Um, what do I care about most? Yeah, exactly. I think I was writing about a lot of different things and and also not understanding how connected all these different things were. Mm. And at the time, they felt siloed. But I felt like I cared about all of them and wasn't sure how to tie it together. I mean, if you think of it, the election of Trump was a decisive finger in the face no, for sure. of any environmentalist or mm. anybody who cared about anything. No, and I think that it was a big galvanizing moment for a lot of people um, and a wake-up call, I think, for a lot of people to be like, we need to do a lot more. What I actually gained a lot from looking back at that blog was grace for people <laughs> because my blogs were not perfect at all. I'm sure I said a lot of stupid things. More just like a lot of not perfect takes on things. And I think I needed to go on that journey And I'm glad that I didn't give up. And I'm glad that I didn't think just because I don't understand all of political theory or of how change happens, that I didn't give up. And so I think that actually what reading that for most was there's a chapter on don't know what you don't know. And I think that, yeah, that grace that we need for other people of allowing each other to be on a journey is so important. But confessing these ages, if you like, Mm -hmm. is also attractive for different ages of Mm. reader. And so kids of 16 chiming in with what you experienced. Yeah. Say, hang on a minute, that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah. I think we, so often, we obscure our journeys. Like, we act as if all of us leapt from the womb as these, like, unproblematic, perfectly switched on people. And I think that all that does is just alienate people who aren't at that same point then and makes them think, I don't understand everything. I'm not perfect, so I can't do anything at all. And so I'm hoping that in, like, illuminating a bit more of my own journey that that will, yeah, bring other people in. The younger generation is often mocked for talking about eco-anxiety and all the rest Mm. of it, even though it is a rational response to our current situation, do you think that talking about that anxiety, educating yourself about the reason why you feel anxious, is critical to moving on to action? Absolutely. I think so often when we talk about eco-anxiety, the responses to it that we're saying is just trying to get rid of the feeling rather than transform that emotion. And I think that if we just try and push down that feeling, it's still going to be there somewhere. How do we translate and transform those emotions into something else? So how do we get them out of ourselves? Like, how do we make that into creating action? Because for me, I was so eco-anxious back in probably around 2018 when that report came out. I would lie awake in bed, unable to sleep because I was so scared for our future and for the present of my family in Jamaica and siblings all over the world in, in much more climate insecure areas. I think that feeling of panic came from feeling like I had no agency, like there's nothing that we can do about it and it's only up to big governments to make decisions. And I felt like I was just this small person 
the only thing that got me out of that panic was to join a movement. And at the time that was XR and getting involved in direct action and, and organizing. That's what got me out of that eco-anxiety. And I wish that we but more... But that's, yeah. that's really important. Mm. And I'm just wondering, what was the first, as it were, physical manifestation of protest? So I had been involved in the lifestyle changes stuff and like talking to people and educating people. But the first time that I went from beyond that from a climate perspective to really doing something was when I joined XR, we actually, a group of friends that I met at the first meeting, we went along to a Scottish oil club dinner <laughs> because this was when they would publicly post about the dinners. They now make them quite private. And we're talking um, teens? How old were you? Uh, at this point, I was, I think, 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just saw that this was being advertised publicly. It was an open event. And yeah, I know, I know. It was, it was almost like it was waiting for us. So we all... We all said we were going to go undercover, which meant all of us, without talking to each other, turned up in black turtlenecks. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) But then didn't talk to each other because we didn't want to give it away. And then sat through the first talk, which was all about how the fossil fuel industry are going to go green. But up until that point, up until net zero, they need to extract as much oil and gas out of the ground as possible while they can legally do so. So basically admitting that they, they don't really care about this climate crisis. They will meet net zero, but they're going to make it so much worse for us in in the lead up to that by trying to kind of increase their efficiency of extracting um, and burning as much oil and gas as possible. And then after that talk where um, he ended actually with this picture of Kermit the Frog on the screen and was like, it's not easy being green, which was a bit ridiculous. But um, we just stood up and asked questions and said, oh, how can you say this when you know that this is completely in contradiction with the science? I think our interruptions did escalate a bit more to like, how can you sleep at night? I think one person did say, but at that point we were... Um, ejected. My job was just to film. This was very early on and I was, remember shaking, like I was Mm. so nervous. But afterwards, it did feel like we'd, even if it was just a disruptive thing, we'd done something to try and make it so that this industry that is causing so much harm to all of us and is literally causing the extinction of so many communities and nature all over the world, we were going to make it that they don't feel like they can comfortably talk about that work in our city. And now... Every year since when the Scottish Oil Club, which is now rebranded to the Scottish Energy Club, because they want to make it as if they are not fossil fuel people, and that's what they are, um, they get disrupted every year. And it's got bigger and bigger, whether it's people blocking the entrances or people petitioning to these venues to say, hey, don't host these these events, and then they can't have them. And I think it's been exciting to see how what was just a small group of friends has grown so much. But this was uh, in the main in Scotland, because you were mm. studying at Edinburgh University. Yeah. And I'm wondering what proportion do you think roughly of the protesters were ethnic minority as you are? So it was because it was my group of friends. It was actually half, at least half of us. Because, oh, really? Yeah, so, so it we was... were. Yeah, I think that's so it was basically I remember I went to that first XR meeting and my friend, who, who's now one of my closest friends, came up to me. I think saw another non-white face in the room and was like, I'm going to look after you and join me into this little group. And all of us fought together for climate justice. And they and they really nurtured me and taught me a lot of what I know now and was through those kind of relationships. I think that's how we learn a lot of what we know. Because in a sense, I mean, the people who are suffering first Mm. from degradation, from climatic degradation, are very often minority peoples. Minority in the UK, but the majority globally. I think so often our communities are positioned in comparison to whiteness or comparison to populations in global north countries or like the UK. But actually globally, we are the global majority and it's our communities, the majority of humanity that are being sacrificed for the profits of a very, very small percentage of people. And I think it's really important that we come together and and realise we outnumber the rest of them so we can do so much more when we actually realise our power. Did you at any stage in these early days ever find anybody who, as it were, you're trying to influence, Mm. who said, well, 
Yes, I do recognise that you've got a point here. Or was it always hitting your head against a brick wall? I think that, especially, for example, at that oil dinner, we spoke to a lot of the people afterwards. We hung around and we spoke to a lot of the folks who were there. Who must not actually have spent much time talking to people like you before. No, no. So they're all executives in the fossil fuel industry. So people kind of higher up, not like the people working on oil rigs. They were people who have a lot more power. And we had lots of conversations with them. In the moment, I do think that we got somewhere But I do think that there is this cognitive dissonance that exists within the fossil fuel industry that they believe that they are saving humanity, which is so bizarre. Like They have this belief that the whole of Africa would be destitute without us, even though their work is destroying so many lives on the African continent. But I think that we can break through. And we saw that with one of the executives from Shell. She recently, last year, I actually can't recall her name, publicly released a letter and resigned from her position saying that she knows that Shell is going against what we actually need to tackle the climate crisis and that she hopes that more people will follow suit and leave their jobs there and call for real change. It strikes me that you have taken on as a student the toughest of all, which is medical Uh, And I'm just wondering, do you not feel overwhelmed sometimes when you're trying to balance all these things? Absolutely. I went into medicine because I think at school we're told if you want to make the world a better place and you're good at science, then become a doctor. Um, (laughs) And I was. Will you be a doctor? Yes, I will. I will because my grandmother will not let me not be my Jamaican grandmother. You don't think there's any danger you're going to be derailed by your sheer passion for (laughs) saving the planet? I really want to try and make both things work because I think that there is also so much power in having medical professionals who care so deeply about this crisis and this kind of injustice as well. And I have so many incredible colleagues who work with organizations like MedAct or Dr. Frexar or other groups who are really kind of making both things work. And I'm grateful for them. So I hope that I can join them, but we'll see. Don't you ever feel overwhelmed? I mean, I'm told that medical (laughs) is the most demanding of all. I think medicine is actually kind of just a memory game in some ways. Like Mm -hmm. you just, it's about remembering a lot of stuff. And in many ways, being a climate activist, a lot of my work is also about remembering things and being able to communicate things. And that's also what medicine is about. So I think that there's a lot of transferable skills from both Mm -hmm. and a lot of it's about communication as well. But I did get really overwhelmed. I was juggling way too much when I was at medical school before I took a sabbatical. And I burnt out so badly. I was really not well because of doing too much. How old were you? Uh, 22 at that time. Burnout at 22. Yeah, I know, I know. But sadly, that's what I'm seeing everywhere happen with a lot of people in the climate movement because I think, especially young people, I think we have so much passion and we really want to change everything and then we believe that it's just on us to do it. But I think what's so important to remember for all of us and what's something that I've had to remember is that whilst every single contribution of an individual matters, one person is not going to save all of us and that's not going to happen and so therefore we need to take breaks and look after ourselves as well. Well, you write about taking part in your first direct action, a lock-in in Westminster with Extinction Rebellion in Scotland. What gave you the resolution to put yourself at risk through a risk and your medical career, mm. given it was so important to your family too? She speaks as somebody who was sent down from university but uh, for protest. Oh, really? Yeah, but I mean, you know, it was nothing by comparison with what you were doing. Well, I think I wasn't expecting to to take an arrestable action when we went. When we went down, I was very clear of I don't want to jeopardise my medical career. Also, I'm really scared of the police because of institutional racism. I didn't want to put myself in that compromising position. But when we were there on the day that I ended up locking on, which is kind of a process where you chain yourself to 
infrastructure so you can't be moved by the police. That site was right by the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which is the same place of the government where they tackle climate change and they also give fossil fuel subsidies to the oil and gas industry. So it's bizarre that it's all in the same place. And we'd kind of been occupying that area and talking to people about these fossil fuel subsidies and trying to kind of raise the alarm on them. And we had many different politicians and MPs who'd walked through on their way to parliament and talked to us. And on that day in particular, I had been reading a live reading of the IPCC report, the same one that galvanized me. And I was reading the part about oceans and ocean life. And something that I'm really passionate about as well is coral reefs and scuba diving. That's if if we had no climate crisis, I'd be underwater every day. But, but that is where you see it most marked. Yeah, it's it's actually quite genuinely terrifying that when I have dived in Jamaica in the last few years, you can see the reefs being bleached and disappearing. And those coral reefs protect the land from sea level rise and from hurricanes and things. They are and so important. Kills. When they're bleached, the coral's dead. The corals are so necessary for so much marine life, also for food for people in Jamaica, like and all other island nations. And reading the report and hearing how in my lifetime, unless we take really drastic action, these incredible marine systems that I have, they brought me so much joy and that have given protection and life to my peoples and my ancestors could disappear. It shattered my heart in that moment. And, and to be honest, it just felt like I have to do whatever I can. And one thing that I could do that day is they needed someone to lock on because the police were closing in on our site. And so I chained myself with a man called John, actually, who was in his late 60s. It was me and him for like um, six or seven hours locked together. We became, I think, quite good pals through that. But it wasn't easy. And I think that sometimes we can forget to humanize the people who are taking these risks as well. Because for me, when I locked on, I just burst into tears because I just felt suddenly like the weight of all these things I've been talking about and intellectualizing in some way hit me of like, our government's current plans for net zero give us like a 50-50 chance of staying below 1.5. I wouldn't put my kid in a car that has a 50-50 chance of getting to its arrival. So like, why is the government choosing to sacrifice us for short-term profit? It really felt heartbreaking. And then there's so much to say about that night. Later on, the Met police officer gave me a lecture on why the police aren't racist. Well, I literally couldn't move. And I was like, is this the time? Um, (laughs) I was like, what is going on? And they were... um, Yeah, doing a lot of intimidation tactics. It was a really, not going to lie, a really horrible time because we were alone in the middle of the night. We ended up locking off at about one in the morning. But thankfully, they didn't actually arrest us. They let us walk, which was a bit of a surprise. But John actually stayed. So John, my partner in, he was like, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to make them stay until six in the morning. And they cut him off very early. So like, big up John for for kind of, he he said he was doing it. He doesn't have grandchildren, but he has friends who do have grandchildren and he wanted to do it for them. In 2021, when you were still in your own early 20s, mm. uh, you took the UK government to court. Yeah. You, you went on the streets, you were actually doing it legally in the mm. courts over its continued support for fossil fuel production in the North Sea. What impact did this action have in the world and on you personally? And did it persuade you that the law courts were the way to try and fight this thing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the court case was... Um, a quite difficult thing to be involved with because I had not much knowledge of the legal system at all. I went into medicine, not law. And Mm. so um, it was a whole new world and there was a lot to learn. Mm. Um, And how that kind of came about was because following on from that time of locking myself to that stage outside of that department, I then connected with some people who... Hang on, tell people what the DAT department is. Oh, so the Department for Business, Energy, Industrial Strategy. But um, after that action, which was very much outside of the system, putting disruption on, I connected with some other folks who were equally as passionate about stopping these fossil fuel subsidies. What these are basically is that the government and governments all around the world give 
public money to prop up these fossil fuel industries. So $11 billion are given to fossil fuel subsidies every single minute in the world, which is pretty wild, um, given that these companies are already multi-billion dollar companies. And in the UK in particular, at the point of us doing the case, the UK government had given over £4 billion of public money to these companies in public payments or tax relief. But this was something that the government denied they were doing. So they would say that this isn't true, there aren't negative tax years. And our court case was basically saying this was unlawful for them to be doing this. And Did illogical. you get any joy at all? <laughs> From the court case? Yes. I think for sure, it felt quite powerful to be like, we're yeah, taking but, the government to court. But what happened? Oh, so what? Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> so I think the biggest thing that came out of it was in court, the government were forced to admit on record that they do give these public payments and these tax reliefs. So to um, some extent it worked? Yeah, for, no, for sure. Because then but now, it didn't change anything? We don't know that yet. No, we don't. We don't know that yet. And I think that one thing that we have to remember in all of this work is that I see it as like mushrooms and mycelium. So mycelium are the networks of fungi underneath the ground that are there always and they're growing and they're forming new connections and new networks and they're communicating with each other. And we don't see them. But what we do see is a mushroom sprout up every now and then. And when we see a massive mushroom sprout up, we might think, oh my gosh, that came out of nowhere. That's a miracle. But what we haven't seen is the mycelium that have been growing and connecting and building and nourishing each other for so long for that kind of mushroom to sprout. And so I see the work that we were doing with that court case as we were building those mycelium networks so that people can use that. Now that the government has admitted that, that is now able to be usable. All the information that was forced to be put on record is now usable in the public for anyone to use to, to be able to challenge them on these things. But this is distinctly interesting and intriguing because it actually means that protesters... Mm. Turning to the courts got comfort mm. and made some inroads. Some inroads, for sure. I don't believe that the legal system is going to save us because I think that the fact that it can be seen as like lawful and acceptable for the government to be giving money to these companies to me shows that there's like a problem. But you wouldn't turn your back on further legal action. I wouldn't because especially with so many communities across the world, we've seen so many cases be won in the same year that our case was taken to court. A group of activists from the Netherlands took Shell to court, rolled up Shell to court, and they won and managed to force Shell through The Hague to have to scale down their production um, dramatically. And that was won through a court. And also we have indigenous communities in Ecuador who have come together and taken either their governments or fossil fuel companies to court. And they've won and they've caused changes. So I, I don't think that we abandon litigation at all. No, um, I think but we at see the same it as a time, yeah. you're not either abandoning no. protest. No, 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 and, for and sure. So it's rather interesting that you are committed, it seems mm. to me, to a process that both embraces the law yeah. and protest. Because I, I think we need a multiplicity of tactics. I think that um, this is, and, and this is what people have used in the past as well. We look at like the civil rights movement as well. That wasn't just protest on the streets or it wasn't just trying to change policy from the inside perspective or it wasn't just taking people to court like we saw so that people could go to co-educational schools or mixed schools. Is all these tactics together. And I think when, we, when we're facing, bear in mind, the fossil fuel industry are using all these tactics. So we have to meet them with our own power as well. And I think that we can. So yeah, I think whilst I'm no longer part of Extinction Rebellion, for various reasons, I still believe in direct action. I still believe in using whatever tactics that we can to try and build a better world. Just as you say that, why have you moved away from Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, I, for me, it was, I found that I was having to fight a lot of internal fires, yeah. especially around class and race and a lack of understanding of those issues and having to constantly feel like something that I write about in the book is how often we'd be told that including racial justice in our organizing would be like diluting the message and would confuse people too much. 
But basically, we were being told that we weren't really valuable. And that's why I got to a point at one point where I was just like, I am expending so much of my energy arguing with people internally, and I want to be able to build things. And there's a brilliant quote by Toni Morrison. He says that the very serious function of racism is distraction. It stops you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over your reason for being. And I think I found that I realized I was doing that. And I was like, I, I don't want to be just explaining my reason for being over and over. I want to do my work. I have things to do. And so I chose to take a step back and enter spaces where I could more easily do my work. But XR have done a lot of good work, I think, in the time since then, because it's been quite a few years. And I think that the climate movement as a whole has moved much further beyond the whole diluting the movement idea around racial justice, and they've realized that it's essential. But it is interesting that, that basically you have made work a combination of, yes, distinct rebellion, mm. uh, and at the same time, clever usage of the courts, although mm. heaven knows how you finance it. <laughs> Well, I was not involved with the the financing part of it, but there definitely had to be funding for that because court cases are expensive. That's one thing that I also found out was... And this is where NGOs and the rest of it can weigh yeah, in. Yeah, so. for sure. So we had an NGO working with us on the campaign who were the ones who were able to finance it. So that was uplift. That's why I think so often there is this idea, which I do explore in, in the book quite a lot, of the idea of that some things are too radical or not radical enough and that people sit on two different spectrums of that. And I think that what we need to do is be using all the tactics in our arsenal that get us towards a better transformed world. But in doing that, it's not about settling for less or it's not about compromising. Aurora Levins-Morales, she um, talks about if we can't have everything now, we take the path that allows us to have everything in the future. So it's not about compromising that transformed, liberated future or the revolution. It's about how do we use the things that we have right now to allow us to most easily get there. You're listening to Snowcast with me, Jon Snow, and we'll be right back after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Let's um, look at responsibility and turn to an argument in the book that's not remotely radical, that fossil fuel companies are in the wrong here. Mm -hmm. You really dive into their history with some very damning facts. But let's start with the origins and the original name, BP. Can you believe that BP's first name was the first exploitation company? And the first? The first exploitation company. Good Lord, I know. what brazen. <laughs> I know, I know. When the kind of world and the UK in particular transitioned from like a coal-based kind of energy system to an oil one, the Royal Niger Company sold Nigeria. Nigeria? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So oh, that's, no, no small country. No, no small country. The connections between the fossil fuel industry and colonialism and exploitation are just so blatantly obvious. But I think that there's also still like... Even in Nigeria, there's a lot of government collusion with the fossil fuel industry because of a history of persistent exploitation and imperial powers. And these companies putting 
exerted power on the peoples and working with local governments and militias to to cause real harm to the peoples that are there. Um, it is ridiculous we're not taught these things. But I think it's it's very deliberate what we are taught and not taught. It's it's what story do we want people to, sure. to, to see the world yeah. as? And I think that if we're told, oh, wait a minute, these fossil fuel companies were so involved with the colonialism that we, I think, hopefully a lot of us can see was, was not a good thing. It was a very bad thing. Then we realize that they have always been this way and that they are going to continue to... Um, to cause this harm and that we can't trust them with the future. We could leave it with BP, but we can't because we discover from your book that Exxon's 1980s research project and the PR campaign which followed, you called it one of the biggest social influence campaigns the world has ever seen. That's a rather bold claim. But it's true because ExxonMobil, they did the kind of original climate science. It was much more detailed than a lot of the climate science that was being done elsewhere. And they saw that their own products were, were causing this damage all around the world. And rather than sharing that information with governments and rather than scaling down their oil and gas production, they instead did the opposite where they hired the best PR people they could find and they created what I see as the biggest social influence campaign of greenwashing and climate delay and climate denial where they, even though they knew more than anyone that this is true, they put out infomercials, they put out commercials, all these different things, basically trying to see doubt in people's minds that maybe this isn't real. And they, it's, it's really interesting. I'd really recommend the podcast Drilled that goes into this in depth by Amy Westervelt because it's just wild how they use every avenue. They use kind of faith groups to try and do it. They use like automobile industries to, to do it. It's bizarre how much, and it's quite staggering how much we have been manipulated to believe that this wasn't that serious for so long. And no wonder there wasn't enough action happening. It's incredible. The title of your book is It's Not That Radical. Though, forgive me, I'm, <laughs> I'm quickly being radicalized this end of the table. Um, a term that's been leveled at you to invalidate what you're saying, it's not that radical. But mm. you do believe in radical change mm -hmm. and capitalism is in your sights. Mm. You believe we won't survive living with an economic system which pursues profit above all else. Mm -hmm. And we can't just greenwash the existing capitalist system. Mm -hmm. You're talking revolution. Yeah, but I think that what I'm saying when I say it's not that radical, it's because I think radical has come to mean in the mainstream, oh, radical is ridiculous. Radical is outrageous. And I think it's so important that we define what is really ridiculous and outrageous. And I think it is ridiculous that our governments are propping up the same companies that are causing our destruction. It is outrageous that these companies and governments have known for so long. Could there be a trade-off? Could, could there be a way in which government and oil companies could act responsibly together? I think if they're doing an... A, or are oh, you really saying we just can't have any oil dug out of the ground at all? Well, the, and it's not just me saying it. It's the, the International Energy Agency, which is a, a very conservative agency, um, who are not an activist-like campaign group. They are <laughs> a very conservative agency. They've even said that we cannot have any new investment in oil and gas and as we're recording this, IPCC have also said the reserves that we're currently exploiting from the projects that we're currently using, if we use all of that oil, we'll make it beyond the crucial 1.5 degrees limit. So we absolutely cannot be having any more. So I think the way that governments and oil companies can work together is by pushing for like a just transition where they are actually prioritizing workers' jobs and actually transitioning all the funds they're currently putting towards oil and gas into renewable energy, which is it's so frustrating because it's so possible and it wouldn't even be that expensive. Even the IPCC have said that it would be relatively low in cost to do this transition. Um, Could so you cost it and show us ignorant people how easy it is? I'm not sure if I can cost it right now, but... <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't maybe. mean right now, but I mean, 
Wouldn't that be a useful campaign too? Yeah, no, and I think people are doing this. And there, there is the information out there, but I think it just needs to be pushed out a bit more, this idea. I think people have believed this idea that it would be too expensive yeah. or impractical. Yeah. And I think that that is not true. And it's so important that we realise... But you realize, do have to prove it. Yeah, yeah, we, it's not... And you actually need to get a government behind it. For sure. And we, I mean, we have governments behind it in, in Colombia, for example. But that I think that's a, a loss from all the parties to be honest, going on in the UK at the moment, because... No one is offering a real alternative. And I think that that's the problem, is that people are being offered options that are all pretty similar. And what we need is to have an option offered to us, which is like, we can do this, and here's how. Because hmm. it is very possible, and it's not just me talking about it, that people have drawn up these plans, like the information on how we can cost these things is out there. It's just a shame that people are not backing them because they are lacking in the audacity. I think that we need to be like, we can do this and we will do this. And people are being a bit too... I was going to say a bit too cautious, but I think that like... Defeatist. Yeah, defeatist is a better term for sure, because... Well, let's, yeah. let's pause it with defeatist and move on a little bit. And the other key message in your book is that of racial justice. Mm. You call it the principle that this book is written on. Mm. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. We, we'd need, well, a whole series of these uh, podcasts. But firstly, tell me about your direct experience of climate change in Jamaica, but where does race come into it? Mm. So I'll start with Jamaica. Yeah. Um, you were actually born in Jamaica, Yeah, right? I was yeah. born in Kingston, um, yeah. and we, but we only lived there until I was about two and a half um, mm. years old, and then we moved over to the UK. But Jamaica is a small island that, given our size, we've had a huge cultural impact all over the world. Um, you said it. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and my, um, my grandmother still lives there, and as do the whole of my mum's side of the family. And I found that when I went back, especially in 2020, there was a beach called Hausha Beach that anyone who's from Jamaica will know about. Um, it's the kind of beach that people who live in the city in Kingston go to. And I spent many, many days as a child going there um, as a kid when we were growing up as a toddler and as I grew up. And in 2020, I went back for the first time in four years and that beach had disappeared. So Ooh, it's been... That's um, tangible. Yeah, it's been submerged by water because of hurricanes and rising sea levels. And that's in a very short period of time. Mm. And there's a whole community that lives in that area. Their lives are being made so much more precarious because of this. So seeing that happen to Jamaica was really a huge wake-up call for me of like, oh gosh, this is happening so, so quickly. But also I think why it's so important to realise the connection to racial justice is when I talked about so the fact that ExxonMobil did all this climate science in the 1980s and governments, even after Exxon buried that science, they've still known for a very long time that this climate crisis is happening. And the IPCC reports that have been coming out every few years have been detailing where the impacts are going to happen. They know and they that they are in the north and the south. I mean, we've, we've seen the flooding that's mm. been happening already in Germany or in the UK mm, as well. Yeah. And in Edinburgh, you can walk around the streets in Leith, which is where I, I used to live. And people have drawn lines on the ground of where the sea level will rise to if we don't do anything. Like even those lines were like, 10 minutes walk from where I was living. There are impacts in both, but the majority of them are happening on the African continent, on the Asian continent, islands like the Caribbean and Latin America. And it will happen everywhere. But I think it's really important to note that that we've known that the worst impacts will impact communities of, of colour the most, the global majority. Hmm. But and, nevertheless, if you can start awakening people hmm. who live in the north, yeah. that it is happening to yeah, them, yeah. and it's happening much, much worse to other people further south, Yeah, yeah. we might be moving a bit. No, for sure. But I think it's just so important also for us to to note that it's been a deliberate choice to sacrifice certain lives over others. I think we act as if it's government inaction that's caused the climate crisis, but it's actually like government collusion with the fossil fuel industry. 
And I think that that can galvanize us because whilst the worst impacts are happening all over the world, even in the UK, it's the people who are on the margins, the majority of this country that will be impacted by the climate crisis the most. And also the kind of things that would solve those impacts mm. and tackle those impacts are also things that would make our lives better. Things like insulating our homes and, and having heat pumps like means people have warmer homes in the winter and colder homes in the summer. And these are things that will actually make our lives better. And so I think it can be motivating to realise that this is not just about stopping bad stuff, it also could be about creating some good stuff as well. And given your medical training, you are particularly interested in the health impacts of the climate crisis in the global south, but also here in the UK. Tell me about Ella Kissy Debra. Mm. So I was I was with Ella's mum actually last weekend at an event. So Ella Kissy Debra, um, Ella Roberta, she was a nine-year-old young black girl living in London who died, was the first person in the world to have air pollution put on her death certificate. At just nine years old, she had a severe asthma attack after being in and out of the hospital with asthma attacks because of pollution in her area, which is a, a majority black area in London and a poor area in London. But the thing is that whilst Ella is the first person to have it on her birth certificate, and her mum, who's Rosamond Kissy Deborah, she has campaigned fervently since about air pollution. Sadly, it's not just Ella. Um, in the areas of London that have higher black populations, there are more unsafe air pollution levels in those areas. And I think people think that environmental racism, which is what this kind of would be, is this thing where it's like pollution follows non-white people. But that's not what, what happens. It's about power. And it's because a lot of these communities are ones that are under our economic system and given less power economically as well. And so therefore, companies can come and be like, I'm going to, for example, in Edmonton, which is where my Jamaican side of my family, so not my mum, but the rest of her family, where they moved to in the 80s. That's um, North London, yeah. It's in North London. There's an incinerator that's been put there that's the biggest incinerator in the UK, I believe, and it causes really bad air pollution levels. But the, the reason that it's allowed to be there is because this whole idea of not in my backyard, richer communities would have more power and more time to campaign against these things. And then they get put in the communities that are seen as disposable. That's, that's very brutal. But it's happening also in, in Scotland as well. But you're not telling well. me that elected officials are literally saying, look, they're poor there, so dump it. Well, I think they're saying, oh, we can get away with that, whereas we, we can't get away with it elsewhere because so-and-so funds my campaign in this area and I don't want them to um, have an incinerator there. But it happens in Scotland as well with working-class white communities. In Moss Moran was an area that I would campaign around a lot. There's a petrochemical plant there that flares, so it means that basically any gas that they can't sell or, or kind of transmit, they burn it because it's cheaper than storing it. And that flaring can happen for days at a time. And local community members have experienced really bad health implications. Neurodiverse community members have talked about the fact that they can't sleep at night and they feel really overstimulated by the fact that there's just raging fire all the time. But it's always in these communities that seem to have less power where these these plants are put and where the impacts are faced most. And so it's important to realise that and to realise how much power has to play I mean, who's being impacted. You've spoken of some very, very real and grim facts. Mm. Let's go positive for a yeah, moment. please. <laughs> Let's look at the short term. What big story at COP would excite you, make you feel more hopeful? Tell me, one. Finally, including fossil fuel phase out on the agreement. It, the fact Amazing, that, which, but that is that not on the cards, is it? It is on. I think that we have made the impossible possible so many times, and I think that 
before any kind of transformational change has happened, other people have said that's never going to happen. And then once it happens, everyone's like, oh, obviously that was going to happen. And we saw that with loss and damage. Um, Humanity is going to leave the stuff in the ground? Yes, I've, I, we have to. I have to believe with all my soul that we're going to do it. I have to believe we're going to win because otherwise, like, what else am I, am I doing? And I think that um, my ancestors in Jamaica had to experience conditions that I cannot even imagine. Like when they were kidnapped from their mm-hmm. homelands mm-hmm. on the African mm-hmm. continent, when they were forced to labor day and night, and they had to believe that their fate was not sealed. And they, that is their hope, that active hope that means that I'm alive today and that I am here today talking to you and that I'm able to do this work. And so I think that I have to believe in, this, in a similar way that they believed that our fate is not sealed. And but that the whole world things. would have to pull together. I mean, this means China, this means Russia, this means us, that means America, it means all of us, everybody, India, all. But we have, but we, I don't think people, I think it's remembering <laughs> that we won't survive as a humanity if we don't do these things. It's so deeply urgent. And I think that, um, for example, we saw at the last COP, loss and damage was included in the agreement in the end because it was the like G77, which is like the 77 mm. poorest nations came together in a block and realized like we outnumber you as a as a block. We are not going to let this agreement go through unless we get what we need. And people were shocked at that. People thought we would never get a loss and dam- damage agreement made. That was another thing that people said would is never Is it happen. working? Um, that's yet to be seen. We're going to make it work. Because I think once you have something to hold people by, then you can then you can do something. And I think that, um, for example, I would not have been able to take the UK government to court if it wasn't for things that were put in the Paris Agreement. So we were able to hold them to things that they'd agreed to in the Brilliant. Paris Agreement. And so now that we have a loss and damage finance facility, maybe people could take litigation cases around that. And if we manage to get fossil fuels in the agreement, then people will be able to take their governments to court all around the world to hold them to those agreements that they've made. But we're only going to be able to do that if we come together and really put pressure on our governments, on institutions um, and kind of initiatives like the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which uses the same logic of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, seeing that today's weapons of mass destruction of fossil fuels, um, they are doing a lot of incredible work around this. And I think that we can do it. We can definitely do it. Now, you've used this phrase, loss and damage, Mm -hmm. as how we compensate and deal with the appalling consequences of climate change. Mm. Could you just spell out what it really means? Yeah, so loss and damage refers to the things that have already been lost or damaged because of impacts of the climate crisis. So the impacts of, of flooding in Pakistan, for example, as we saw that huge flooding that happened last year, or maybe the damage that's caused by rising sea levels in island nations like Tuvalu in the South Pacific. And if I could give a quick analogy that might make it a bit easier. If you think of like the climate crisis or our world as like it's a bath, and the bath is overflowing, and that's the overflowing bath that's causing the damage. So the damage that's being done is loss and damage. The bath that's overflowing is the climate crisis getting worse, and the tap, the water that's coming out of the tap is fossil fuels. What we could do is adaptation, which is make the sides of the bath higher, which is something that we might need to do because we already have an amount of water in there. What we could also do is try and open the plug to get some of that out. But if the tap's still running really fast, it's not going to balance out enough. And what we can do is try and mop up the damage that's already been happening, which is what loss and damage tries to do. So whilst we need to address that damage that's already been done, whilst we need to be increasing the size of the bathtub, what we also need to do alongside all of this is just to turn off the tap. And we currently are trying to keep running that tap for way too long. And so turning off that tap is kind of mitigation, so stopping the fossil fuels in the first place and the emissions. And so I think that loss and damage is an important part of all of it, but it all has to come together if we really want to tackle this adequately. You write of the people whose wisdom you share and the community that taught you about the climate. Tell me, who has most inspired you? Or is it really the wisdom of the collective? I think if I could say who's most inspired me in the last year or two, I would say Francia Marquez. 
So she is the vice president of Colombia now. Mm. And she's been a climate activist since she was 13 years old and um, defending her territories. She's a dark-skinned Afro-Colombian woman. Colombia has a very similar history to Jamaica. Why don't we know more about her? Because there's a language barrier. And I think that's why I bring her up. Like, I, if I could briefly um, speak on her, because she's just incredible. She began organizing when she was 13 years old in her community. She became a team mum at 16 and then went to work in the mines to provide for her child. And then when working in the mines and realizing their terrible conditions, she organized all the other women miners to come together and unionize and to fight for better conditions for themselves in their territories. And then she managed to get indigenous communities and other communities from her territory to walk over 350 kilometers to the capital to demand their rights um, and to demand climate justice. And then she became a lawyer and she's done so many incredible things and has not let go of her transformative climate justice politics in becoming the vice president. And so she has inspired me so much in the last couple of years. You write of hope. What is your hope for this book? My hope for this book is, is definitely that it causes more people to join in this movement and to begin organizing, but also that it transforms perspectives because I know that my perspective on many different things was changed by writers. So whether it was Audre Lorde or Angela Davis or Emma Dabry more recently or Sean Fay, um, different writers who, um, in choosing to present an alternative, better world that we can we can ho not only hope for, but build, that has changed how I live my life and therefore the things that I build. Um, and so my... My hope is that it will do that even for even for a few people it would be amazing, but hopefully for, for more than that as well. But your longer term hope is that your book will become obsolete. Yeah. Because? Because I, I hope that we are in a better world <laughs> where the ideas that I'm talking about that might seem radical or might seem where that they're really pushing things. Where does your hope come from? My hope comes from um, actually an interview with Angela Davis where she talks about... Um, Angela Davis. Yeah, the abolitionist um, yeah. and feminist. She spoke about how when she was fighting for a feminist revolution back in the 1970s, the vision that she had for a completely liberated world was limited because she didn't understand trans issues, for example, at that time. And how if they had achieved her revolution, it still wouldn't have been the best revolution that they could have had. And it still wouldn't have been the best future they could have had. And so she's so grateful that she's learned so much since then to the now the revolution she's fighting for is one that's, that's even better and, and more transformed. And so I think that I was really humbled by hearing that and realizing, and it made me realize that the best future that I can think of right now is not as good as it can get. And so I hope that the things that I'm saying become obsolete because I really hope that we have not only the audacity, but the courage to demand more and to, and to build something even better in the future and in the years to come. You are a lesson to us all. You are a climate activist who is an optimist. Mm -hmm. Let's go with it. Yeah. I'm really deeply grateful to you it's been an absolute honour to talk to uh, Michaela Loach, aged 24. Is 25 now. 25 now. <laughs> I just want to say what a pleasure and an education it's been. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute honour to have this conversation with you. Thank you. That was the very inspiring Michaela Loach. Her book is called It's Not That Radical. It's out on the 6th of April and there are links to that and to Michaela's Instagram account in the episode description. I'm Jon Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice, and I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.